So, um, Richard is a research associate in geography at the University of Sheffield, and uh, he's currently working there on the Connex project. And lucky it's spelled out there. Yes. Human <laughs> <laughs> culture in an age of anxiety. And what he's presenting today on data labeling and the governance of food quality and safety is very much coming out of this um, research project. He's undertaking with colleagues there. And I should also quickly mention that um, he, before Shepard, he has done a PhD in technology studies at UCL, where he worked on the sociology of expectations and related to new pharmaceutical and agricultural biotechnology. So, welcome, Thank you. And yes, thank you very much for the invitation. And um, yes, I thought I'd better have to spell out the uh, Connex project. Um, somebody said that it sounds like a 1980s train company. So, <laughs> 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 Perhaps not the best chosen acronym. But yeah, so for the last um, couple of years in the Connect Project, I've been working on research around the issue of um, date labelling. Both what I'm going to talk about today, which is about the development of a kind of date labelling regime as a means of governing food quality and safety, and work on um, how consumers use and understand labels. And my starting point for today's talk is um, a presentation given by Caroline Spellman, who was then Minister for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, in September 2011. And she was introducing new guidance to food businesses on how to apply labels to their, to their foods. And she said that what they um, wanted to do was to, to try and end £750 million worth of food waste every year and that the government were aiming to end the food labelling confusion and make it clear once and for all when food is good and safe to eat. And Spellman's comments were right, widely reported as um, spelling the end of the sell-by date, so kind of, yeah, sell-by food labels reach sell-by date was one of the kind of particularly original puns that it prompted. And so, in this paper, what I'm going to do is talk about the historical and the spatial evolution of the date marking system of food in the UK as a project that aims to define and govern good and safe food. And so, just so you know what I'm talking about, um, ex expiration date marks are an indication of the shelf life of food. At the moment, they take two official forms, um, use by and best before dates. So use by dates are an indication of food safety, they communicate food safety risks and risk management practices to the consumer. And they represent the date up to and including which food may be used safely. Best before dating, on the other hand, refers to the predicted longevity of quality characteristics, flavour, appearance, texture, and so on. And alongside those two, you have other labels, such as display and till, which are used by stores in terms of stock control. Date labels are interesting because they're one of only six labels that are mandatory on food packaging in the UK and EU. So they're distinct from lots of the voluntary forms of certification and labelling that have formed the focus of quite a lot of research. They're also interesting in that what they try and do is capture a dynamic system. So unlike, say, labelling genetically modified crops, which say this, if depending on your point of view, this is a GM crop, this is potentially unsafe. What date labels try and do is capture what Jane Bennett describes as the vital matter of food, the ways in which food change over time. And that's something that I think is often forgotten in, in, kind of, in work that treats the labelling of foodstuffs as a question of labelling another commodity that has qualities to be defined. So labels are a key instrument of contemporary food policy. They mediate between production, retail and consumption in ways that define the roles and responsibilities of the various actors involved. In their book Food Wars, Tim Lang and Michael Heisman 
describe food labelling as consisting of a series of ongoing battles through which roles and responsibilities of governments, the food industries and consumers are defined and redistributed, and at which relations of power and capital congeal around standards and certification schemes. In the case of food labelling in the USA, Zach Froelich has shown how nutrition labels, at least what's in the bottom, bottom right, represent changing understandings of the consumer within the Food and Drugs Administration. So he talks about how in the 1950s and 60s, early nutrition labelling in the US concentrated on an idea of the ordinary consumer, particularly the quality-concerned housewife. And this was represented in, in an institutional focus from the FDA on standardised quality products. In the 1970s, this gave way to a model of the informed consumer as the FDA moved towards providing loosely standardised information and aimed to empower consumers. By the 1990s, Freud suggests that, that this shifted to a model of public education in which standardised nutrition information, which attempted to balance the interests of food and health lobbies, was used to bring consumers themselves into agreement with nutritional guidelines to commensurate them as the term used. So Froelich's discussion is instructive for thinking about date labelling, and it builds on Frank Trentman's argument that the consumer isn't a stable figure, but emerges in dynamic relation with other actors, authorities, and expertises. It points to the, this work points to how the figure of the consumer is mobilised differently at different times, its boundaries drawn and redrawn, and the consumer's authority and interests are appropriated by different groups. And Froelich also draws attention to the form and the politics of the knowledge is associated with labelling. What's also interesting about Froelich's work in which date labelling also enables is, that, is to trace how labelling evolves over time. So a lot of debates, such as genetically modified crops, have happened over quite a short period. So date labelling allows an explanation of how labelling reflects changing the changing nature of food and the food system. And so these are some things that I hope to kind of draw out of the history of date labelling over the last century or so. So its relationship with the changing nature of the food system and its relationship with the changing nature of social anxieties about food. So within the Connect project, we're contractually obliged to put the word anxiety into every presentation. So um, there it is. <laughs> and, um, yeah. um, I'm also interested in how labelling reflects broader systems and patterns of food governance and changing understandings of what the consumer's role is within those. And finally, I'm interested with my more STS hat on in, in the recurrent problematization and reconfiguration of what constitutes reliable knowledge about shelf life and consumer behaviour. And I'm going to look at these four things over, um, over four periods. So the first period prior to the late 1960s, um, where periodic demands for mandatory labelling, um, either of expiry or of manufacture, were deemed impractical and contrary to, um, contrary to the in interest, particularly of the food industry. Um, secondly, I'm going to look at the 1970s when the first mandatory labelling systems were introduced. Um, their re reformation through in relation to food safety in the 1980s, and then back to Spellman and discussion of food waste in the early 21st century. And although I kind of present this in a nice linear fashion, there's obviously things come up and loop back constantly within the within narrative, so I'll try and draw that out where I can. Um, so the first suggestion is that some form of date marking should be applied to food reflected the value that was attached to freshness in the late 19th and early 20th century, as new food packaging and transport technologies, canning and cold storage, prompted concern about the authenticity of freshness and in turn suggestions that the government should intervene to protect the consumer from manufacturer or retailer mal malpractice. The calls for the date labelling started around the turn of the 21st century. For example, in 1913, proposals were introduced to label cans of condensed milk with their dates of manufacture. And that never happened, partly because of the World War I intervened, but also because of explicit resistance to any form of labelling scheme from the food industry. And in the interwar period, continuing resistance to date labels reflected a broader attitude in UK food governance that market forces, rather than government intervention, were the best form of regulation. 
And this opposition picked up on the technical challenges of, of labelling. So in the build-up to World War II, as people were encouraged to stock up with tinned food in the preparation for war, the President of the UK Board of Trade was asked in Parliament whether he would consider introducing mandatory day labelling of cans to enable people to manage their stock in the home. He replied that although he could, if he wanted to, enforce such marketing, he wasn't satisfied that the advantages which would result from it would outweigh the administrative and technical difficulties involved. And throughout the 30s, 40s and into 1950s, the government and food industry continued to emphasise the difficulties that would be involved in introducing a standardised system. So in 1953, in, um, in the House of Lords, there was a suggestion that the government might like to label what one peer described as the vintage of tinned foods. And um, it was met with the response that, that the government didn't think this would be a practical endeavour because a date stamp would not be a guide to the condition of the food in the tin. And as late as 1964, a government review conducted by the Food Standards Committee reiterated that labelling was technically impractical and might actually result in a false sense of security. So this early resistance emphasised a lack of knowledge and of research that could possibly be used to fill this gap in correspondence between label and contents, between uh, the representation of expiration and the actual material of the food within. However, in the 1940s and 1950s, packaged and pre-prepared foods became increasingly um, common, facilitated by wartime processing and preservation innovations, and associated with new domestic technologies like the fridge and changing domestic roles. Manufacturers and retailers, as these um, types of products expanded, required the expansion of their own marketing systems to manage their stocks. And these new packaged goods created new relations between the industry and consumers, as shoppers' relations with food materials were mediated by packaging rather than by the shopkeeper, particularly as the kind of the shop where the shopkeeper would get the foods off the shelves was replaced by the, by self-service supermarkets or self-service shops anyway. So this is an extract from an oral history interview um, conducted by Polly Russell of British Library in, with the Marks and Spencer's technologist Norman Robson describing how describing the emergence of the first date marking systems within Marks and Spencer's in the 1950s. And he's talking about the development of a cherry Genoa cake, um, which had to be made in a big slab because if you make it smaller, it's not got the same quality. And as soon as it's cut, the cake starts to deteriorate, which introduces the challenge of capturing that process of deterioration. So what Marks and Spencer did was introduce these, um, this packaging which featured a coloured strip and the coloured strip would refer to the day of the week in which the product was cut. And that's the magic word is property. Purple, red, orange, green, blue, yellow. Six days of the week before Sunday trading. And so, yeah, so if the product was wrapped on a Monday, it would have a purple streak, and so on. So this, this initial system was aimed, was an internal system for Marks and Spencer to manage the product, manage their, their own stock. And so, as um, Polly went on to ask, so there's no indication on it that it would tell consumers. And he said, no, there wasn't. But what happened was that consumers start, customers started asking questions. And so Marks and Spencer started telling them. And then they issued a little ticket which sat on the desk and told them what the coloured strip meant. And so, for Norman Robson, this was part of the process of the, the industry coming clean with the consumer. Of, um, opening up what were previously coded date labeling systems. Um, Marks and Spencer's particularly make, um, uh, make quite a big deal of their involvement in the early development of, of date labeling. And um, so they claim to have invented the sell-by date, which was introduced on their foods in the 1970s. And there's not really any evidence that they invented the sell-by date. And quite a lot of the other people were using similar dates around the same time. So it's, but it makes a nice story for the Marks and Spencer's corporate, um, corporate literature. But what they were doing, along with other companies, was starting to make their own coded systems um, understandable, open to consumers on a voluntary basis. 
at the same time, um, open labeling systems were being introduced on a mandatory basis across the rest of Europe. And so by the 19, early 1970s, the UK was one of only three countries in Europe not to have a mandatory open date labeling system. And this pressure for, for, for quality marking um, illustrates what Franck Cauchy has described as the growing importance of objective, transparent standards in post-war definitions of food quality. And it also reflects the emergence of the consumer and of, of the consumer's right to know in place of the more passive customer who was targeted by in maybe the 1930s and 40s. And it also illustrates the growing power of organizations that, that represented the consumer and the changing nature of foods and the spaces in which foods were sold. So, the voluntary labeling systems that were introduced by people like Marks and Spencer's and others spread through the industry, but they were no, by no means universal. And the direct, the direct pressure from consumers that was described by Robson in, within the MS stores it was accompanied by various different mobilizations of the consumer um, within food policy. So the questions posed by customers in MS developed into an organized campaign led by the Sunday Times, consumer organizations, and consumer oriented MPs within Parliament. So, particularly led by Sally Oppenheim, a Conservative MP, who later went on to become chair of the National Consumer Council. And so Sally Oppenheim invoked the figure of the British housewife in support of labelling, arguing that it's an insult to the housewife to put coded date stamping on when she can buy French yogurt in any shop in England with the date clearly marked on it, not in code. So there's a, there's a certain kind of, there's, a, there's an indignance in this system that, that UK food governance is lagging behind that of the rest of the continent. And the Food Standards Committee was asked to revisit the question by the, by the government in the early 1970s. And its final report emphasised the importance of the consumer's right to know, recommending the introduction of the first mandatory labelling scheme. And so, as the British Food Journal noted at the time, this decision was a timely reminder of what public pressure can achieve these days, how sustained advocacy and publicity by interested sectors of society can secure legislative changes which run counter to trade opinions. So it's very much seen within the food industry as a triumph of consumer pressure. And initially the government encouraged the adoption, the wider adoption of voluntary labelling schemes in preparation for a mandatory scheme that would follow later and established a steering group on food freshness to advise on how this might take place. So this steering group reported in 1976, and its report reflects this continuing consensus that, that the safety of food is effectively managed, was effectively managed by existing legislation. And that what the government, where the government needed to intervene was in terms of thinking about the taste, the texture, and the acceptability of food that was being purchased by the consumer. It recommended that dates should be introduced and that they should be applied by the manufacturer, not the retailer. It's a, it's a, there's a lovely section in the report where it talks about how it couldn't possibly be applied by the retailer because there are too many small retailers. There aren't enough. The only people who could do it would be supermarkets and there simply aren't enough of them to do it. So it, um, things have changed. And so these dates that were introduced, the sell-by date, were aimed at the retailer primarily the small retailer who was expected to have difficulty with stock management and might, the Guardian argued, be spurred to present goods in an orderly fashion. So the conclusions and the focus of the steering group, food freshness, reflected the aim of the early date labelling system. As an editorial in New Scientist described, date labelling was a genuine attempt to prevent people being hoodwinked into paying far too much good money for food, which is worth very much less than it's, than it's described. The date labelling system aimed to protect the consumer from the informational asymmetries that, were, that had emerged from changes to food production and retail in the middle years of the 20th century. But even though by now the requirement for labelling had been more readily accepted, 
who the relevant audience of these labels was and what form they should take remained contested. And this introduced questions which started in the 1970s and which have rumbled on into the discussions of Spelman, Caroline Spelman now, that I introduced earlier. So as opponents have long argued, introducing labels introduced new technical challenges. It required re retailers and manufacturers to know their products in new ways. So, as the, um, the former chairman of the Food Labelling Panel of the UK Food and Drink Federation described, open date marking imposed a discipline right along the food chain, requiring the interconnections, interconnections to be clarified and strengthening. They required food businesses for the first time to produce reliable knowledge about product longevity. And, in, and required them to produce a stable definition of freshness that could be applied at the point that the foods left the production line. So whilst that might be easier for some products, this kind of definition of freshness is long proved elusive, as Suzanne Friedberg describes in her book Fresh, and is emphasised by a 1973 article in the British Food Journal by the technical director of a Belfast bakery. So, it's okay for some things, but when we come to such items as sandwich cakes and Swiss rolls, which deteriorate gradually, it's not so easy to know where to draw the line. And that what he recommends is a new experimental orientation towards the foods produced, which introduces new actors from outside the production system. In particular, he recommends a tasting panel with members drawn from production sales, together with some housewives. So, tasting panels had been used um, for quality control. But this introduced a new role for them to kind of to track the evolution of foods over time. And it expanded the use of systems which were developed in the um, late 1940s in, with it by the US Army to measure the acceptability of the acceptability of food. So what happens here, what's happening here is a kind of infolding of, of consumer-produced relations as the consumer is brought into the food business in order to enable day labels to reflect a representation of consumers' taste and expectations. But as well as drawing the consumer into debates about the definition of product quality, the introduction of day labels created um, questions about how the consumer could best be known. So the sell-by date had been widely adopted on a voluntary basis after the, um, the Food Standards Committee reports in the early 1970s. And this sell-by wording was the, the wording of labels that was supported by the steering group on food freshness, and it was the preferred option of the food industry. However, in the early 1970s, the UK was also in the process of joining the, the European community and harmonizing its regulations with those of the rest of Europe. And other European member states, as well as consumers organi consumer organisations within the, within the UK, favoured the adoption of an eat-by date, one that was aimed at the consumer rather than at the food business. So debates about the appropriate wording revolved around an argument about how the consumer would best be informed, and in turn created a space for different interest groups to emphasise their own ability to interpret consumer demand. Those who could best establish that they spoke for the consumer were able to comment most authoritatively on the suitability of different labels. So each actor in this debate started to focus on their superior ability to know and speak for the consumer. So in a House of Lords debate, the director of the Cake and, of the Cake and Biscuit Alliance, Lord Mottiston, laid out the food industry's position and challenged the ability of consumer interests to represent the consumer. So he argued that, actually, on the contrary, manufacturers listen to what the consumer says. Their livelihood depends on it. And one would suggest to the government that the manufacturer probably knows his consumers better than the government do, or better than the, than the organisations which, which purport to represent them. As this debate moved back into the House of Commons a month later, Giles Shaw, um, Giles Shaw MP, drew on Lord Mottiston's questioning to support his own authority to represent the consumer. So he focused on an exchange between Lord Mottiston and Dr Roberts, who is um, head of research at Consumers Association, who was arguing that consumers supported the adoption of a best before label, 
And Roberts's argument was based on consumer research, which Lord Modston initially tries to undermine in this extract. So asking in a kind of question that's, that's quite familiar to anybody who's um, ever tried to present qualitative research, is that you have a methodical way of doing that, or is it done rather generally by the officials and people like yourself talking to their wives or meeting a consumer from time to time? And in response, Dr. Roberts replies that yes, they've spent £6,000 on a very large survey, and they're not just finding out what consumers' association members think, but actually finding out what the general public thinks. And Giles Shaw used Robert's response to go, to go on and argue that this was reasonable research and that we should have evidence based upon substantial research in order to define what the best, um, best wording for labelling would be. Having done this, Giles Shaw went on to introduce his own survey, which, which was sponsored this time by a major meat producer, which, which trumped that of the Consumers Association, arguing that actually consumers preferred to sell by date and that any by date would, consume, would confuse them. So, ultimately, when in 1980 the UK food labelling regulations harmonised UK law with um, the labelling directive, the best before date was introduced in the labelling directive as the preferred date of minimum durability, as it's famous. But it provided a derogation for member states to use their own wording. And so the UK used the sell-by system. So while the introduction of labelling reflected the exercise of the consumer interest and an acceptance of the consumer's right to know, the form in which date label labels appeared in the late 1970s showed the influence of, of the interests of the food industry. Moving forward into the 1980s, the evolution of date labelling shifted from, shifts from food quality to food safety and the protection of consumer health. So the 90, as previous periods, the 1980s were also characterised by changes in food, in the technologies of retail and of domestic food storage, and in the concerns associated with food. In particular, the food scare became the defining feature of the British food system, referring to episodes of acute collective anxiety sparked by media media reports of risks posed by invisible chemical hazards or foodborne pathogens. And the food scare had a major impact on the general regulation of food safety in Britain and on the form of expiry day labelling. So although that they ultimately led to a widespread questioning of the kind of productionist orientation of UK agriculture in light of BSE, the first food scares were associated with changes in food preparation and retail. Um, particularly the spread of cooked chilled foods. So, um, yeah, chilled foods, ready meals, sandwiches, things that have become, that have become the defining features of, the Brit of British food. Um, kind of chilled food introduced in the early 1980s, and the market went from almost nothing in 1979 when Marks and Spencer's introduced the first chicken Kiev um, to over £300 million a year by 1987. In 1988, the first food scare, the first kind of food scare that fits this definition of uh, an acute episode of anxiety accompanied by um, by media, by intense media attention, was that of salmonella when um, outbreaks of salmonella occurred across the country and 120 members of the House of Lords caught salmonella, making it one of those things that the government just couldn't avoid. Um, the salmonella outbreak was very was closely followed by what was termed the listeria hysteria in which several outbreaks of listeriosis occurred across the country and the bacteria was found to be widespread in cheeses, cooked meats, pâtés and chilled foods. So as these food scares seem to proliferate across Britain, the regulatory framework for food and the role of the Ministry for Agriculture, Food and Fisheries came under heavy scrutiny. And this settlement around the regulation of food safety, which have remained relatively unchallenged since um, the 1950s, um, became problematised. And date labelling in particular was focused on as a failing, a failing element in the regulation of pre-packed food. And so um, amongst all the newspaper reports, The Guardian's resident poet, um, Simon Ray, 
um, wrote, this is an extract from a, a longer poem he wrote about the, the problems that were besetting the British food system. And in particular, he draws attention to a few things. So one of which is um, the, the role of expertise in this. So the experts wring their hands and mutter darkly. There's a lot of it about the dose relationships not known. However, there can be no doubt. We need to spend more on research, not less, if we're going to overcome this mess. And he concludes by suggesting that the sell-by date is past its sell-by date, um, as is perhaps the Secretary of State. And what's quite interesting about this is um, that it written in 1989 is that the second verse I put up here is, is, um, is slightly poignant in terms of um, uh, the warning of the risk they take when eating almost anything but steak. And over the next few years, that probably became the, uh, yes, the biggest concern. But what this poem illustrates is um, a broader discourse that that was emerging around that time. So the food, the Institute of Environmental Health Officers, at the same time, warned that sell-by dates didn't represent safety, and they resurrected the wording debates that had settled down um, a decade earlier and called for the introduction of eat-by dates. In 1988, the European Community revised its labelling um, directive and removed the derogation on sell-by. And the UK government added to this its own reforms on, um, with, on food hygiene and the 1990 Food Safety Act. So the, EC, the, the 1988 EC directive removed the labelling derogation and signal, actually did signal the end of the sell-by date. And um, since 1993, it, there have been no sell-by dates on British food, which you wouldn't know um, going to the media reports of Caroline Spellman. And it has a peculiar um, tenacity, this term sell-by date, in the kind of popular imagination and the media imagination. And in fact, in the report of, um, that accompanied Caroline Spellman's um, guidance, in which they hedge around this idea of the sell-by date without ever managing to find a picture or one used, but just being sure that because everybody's talking about it, it must be there somewhere. Um, so the directive instead introduced a dual system of a use-by date, which was for foods hazardous to health, and best-before labelling, which was to cover food quality. This best-before labelling was extended to cover new products that weren't covered by the earlier, by the sell-by system, particularly long-life products and frozen foods. And date labelling took, took place among um, the broader regulation of food hygiene and the introduction of hazard um, has analysis and critical control point, HACCP regulation, and um, chill chains, which had to keep food between 0 and 8 degrees. So it became part of this of a broader connected system of food safety. In turn, as this poem suggests, it introduced changes in the institutional knowledge requirements associated with the regulation of food, bringing expertise and particular types of expertise to the fore. So, in early 1989, the National Consumer Council, led by now Baroness Oppenheim Barnes, argued that while consumers did have a duty to observe the date marks themselves, they needed to know the degree of risk. They need consistent and reliable information, and they need to know the research is adequate. So by this time, the dominant concern of the National Consumer Council had shifted from the threat of deception or fraud by the retailer to focus on the risk of contamination and had begun to challenge the association between food label and food material that had previously been questioned by the food industry. In, terms this, in, in turn, this redefinition of food in terms of risk and safety required new definitions and knowledges of the end of edibility. So while the 1979 system provoked the kind of recommendation of freshness sampling based on consumer taste and expectations. The new use-by system required research that could establish degrees of risk and that could independently verify this data. So, in 1990, the first volume of the Richmond Report on the Microbiological Safety of Food, which was commissioned in response to the food scares, commended the changing knowledge base that, that was associated with the, with the changes in date labelling, suggesting that the introduction of the use-by date will mean that microbiological 
considerations, considerations must be taken into account, and that in turn this should ensure that the data shown on food are far more directly related to the assurance of food safety than has been the case hitherto. So with the introduction of the Use By Framework for the Richmond Report, new connections were established between the package label and the material within. And this introduced new roles for new actors within the labelling system. So as the Richmond Report went on to comment, that shelf lives for individual products can only be determined in light of proper consideration of the particular product by a suitably qualified microbiologist. So the use by labelling regime introduced new forms of knowledge and expertise and introduced endpoints of food that were now defined in terms of its microbiological load rather than in terms of consumer taste. These changes also had significant consequences for the ball and responsibilities of the consumer. In the pursuit of food safety, the views and taste of the consumer were subordinated to, this micro to, to microbiological questions and consumer bodies themselves had shifted from the threat of the shopkeeper to the threat of listeria. And the new safety, the new food safety regimes began to construct consumer behaviour, in fact, as a, as a matter of concern. For the use by system to work, the Richmond Report stressed that the government would need to remind consumers from time to time of the meaning of the use by date and of the risks of not observing it. The new system split directive guidance to the consumer, the, the um, instruction to use by, from the qualities of food themselves, which were indicated by best before. The consumer became a more or less compliant subject of the labelling system. And the new regulations moved the site at which food safety was seen by the state, so at which the, at which the life of food officially ended, moving it into the consumer home. So used by labelling was part of the reimagining of the home as the arena of food safety management, resonantly captured in the description of the domestic kitchen by the Richmond Report as the last line of defence in the food chain. In turn, however, this introduced new uncertainties into food governance, as the unpredictable behaviours and routines of the consumer were added to the controlled spaces of the food industry. So the questions of what the consumer does between purchasing and used by labelled product in the supermarket and putting it in their fridge and then eating it. So this history of labelling um, up to the 2000s provides an insight into the contemporary debate that's, that was introduced by, Cal by um, the quote from Caroline Spellman, Spellman earlier. And Spellman's um, discussion and the, the, guide, the death for guidance on date labelling reflects the further change in focus of discourse around date labels from quality to safety to waste. And this in turn has produced a further iteration in the role of the consumer and in the relations of knowledge and expertise surrounded, surrounding the definition of the end of food. So worries about food waste had been present from the early days of the labelling system. In the, 1970, in the 1970s, food industry representatives, um, particularly including Lord Sainsbury, um, raised concerns that measuring and asserting freshness was going to cause, cause the loss of stock and consequently of profits for the food industry. And the concern of the industry was that by reintroducing visible differences in freshness that had been occluded by the introduction of packaging, it would lead to new forms of consumer selection and the discard of, of older produce. In the 2000s, attention has shifted back to, this, to the role of labels in the production of unnecessary food waste, in, both in the retail and domestic context. The use of means of meaning of date labels has become central to UK debates about food waste and the balance of power and responsibility between consumers, retailers, manufacturers and government. So in 2009, Hilary Benn, um, Spelman's Labour predecessor as Minister, gave a speech to the Chartered Institute of Waste Management in which he argued that when we buy food, it should be easy to know how long we should keep it for and how we should store it. And too many of us are putting things in the bin simply because we're not sure, we're confused by the label, or we're just playing safe. 
So Ben's speech highlighted key features of the discussion around, uh, around food waste, distributing blame for waste, and putting date labels at the centre of it. His speech took place at the, the, at the peak of a wave of attention to food waste that was sparked by um, the Waste, waste and Resources Action Programme's report, The Food We Waste, and Tristram Stewart's book, Waste. Rapp suggested that almost a quarter of, of waste food was disposed of because it was past its date. And Stewart devoted a chapter in his book to talking, to talking about the sell-by-date mythology. At the, heart of, um, at the heart of these concerns is this idea of being confused by the label and consumer confusion. So as Rapp, as Rapp suggested, we're not as well informed as we think we are when it comes to, to the use of ex expiration labels. And that this contributes potentially to both food waste and in the concerns of the Food Standards Agency to risky food practices. Tristan Stewart suddenly describes the public as in utter confusion about the labelling system. And so re-educating or reskilling consumers in the use of labels is proposed as part of the solution to the waste problem. So in this second quote, here is from um, the Chief Executive of, of Leatherhead Food Research, which is one of the major sources of expert advice on shelf life. Um, Paul Berryman here repeats what's an often made distinction in um, in public about, about labelling. So this distinction between use by and death before is very useful. One is about safety, one is about quality, and the key is to ensure that consumers understand the distinction. And this is the, the Food Standards Agency also in their um, public talks where they talk about date labelling, repeatedly emphasise this simple distinction between use by and best before, safety and quality. And this, so the, and this, this emphasis and this distinction focuses on the role of the consumer and reflects a wider problematization of consumer behaviour and knowledge related to food. And it represents a redistribution of responsibility for ignorance through the history of food labelling. So in the 1970s debates which led to the introduction of mandatory labelling, knowledge of food quality was, take, was understood as something that had been unfairly taken away from the British consumer, as in Sally Oppenheim's comparison with the French and in the campaigns by, the, by consumers' organisations. In turn, it meant that the state's role was to provide consumers with the information that they demanded in order to be able to function effectively within the market. In contrast, by the 2000s, a lack of knowledge about food has become the consumer's responsibility and the role of the state has become to educate consumers in order to enable the exercise of an environmentally responsible citizenship and effective self-governance. These concerns about the consumer are again tied up with this long-standing challenge of knowing how long food lasts and on what terms it can be deemed to be inedible. So firstly, the ability or inability of the science of shelf life to provide accurate guides to food decay or deterioration has become a key point of contest. This reopens the closures of the 1970s and 1980s related to this correspondence between food knowledge and food material. So they question whether a best before label potentially defined in relation to a panel of expert tasters accurately reflects how the, the kind of distinctions that can be detected by the average consumer. But they also hold that consumer confusion is exacerbated by the inconsistent application of shelf lives and risk in labelling. And so this is um, taken from a slide that, from um, the Waste and Resources Action Programme. And my red circles have shifted slightly, but these are four um, cheddar cheeses. So essentially the same product of which the two on the left are um, labelled with a best before, um, yes, a best before label, a best before date, meaning that they're only going to lose quality over time. The two on the right, in theory, pretty much identical cheddars, are, are labelled with use by dates, meaning that after that date, they could, they could in theory kill. So. <laughs> 
And that quite rightly points to the ridiculousness of this situation in which a safe product can end up with a label that will indicate that it's unsafe. So cheddar is unlikely to support the um, support the growth of bacteria such as listeria. It's got very low water content, it's very salty. It's not an ideal bacterial um, medium. And this inconsistency and apparent ridiculousness of, of, of labelling is used by media and industry commentators as a stick with which to beat the labelling system. So journalists compete to show how they can live for weeks or months on food that's out of date. And comes to depict labelling as the last resort of um, the incompetent, de-skilled or overly anxious contemporary consumer. So Rose Gray, the, um, the chef who's one of the founders of the River Cottage, um, argued that it's people who don't really know anything about food who need, who need things like use by dates as guidelines. And it's this perceived unreliability of day labelling that prompted the commissioning of the new guidance that was introduced by Caroline Sparman. And together with her suggestion that such guidance would lead to the clear identification of good, safe food. And in part the recourse to, um, to guidance is because um, the, label, the form of labelling is, is governed within the EU's food information regulation and is therefore not something that the UK government can tinker with on its own. Um, the guidance takes the form of a decision tree which starts from an initial distinction between microbiologically perishable and non-perishable goods. And this is um, one of the worked examples that's provided in the guidance and it refers to um, the decision between best before or used by dates for yogurts. And like cheddar, yogurt isn't in many ways a kind of conventionally risky product. It's used in um, Tristan Stewart's book, Lord Haskins, who was the um, chair of, of Premier Foods, uses it to talk about how used by dates are um, nonsensical. And so the guidance aims to show how a, a yogurt could end up with one of two dates. Because as a dairy product, it falls into the category of the potentially risky. And so it shows that this decision between best before and used by depends on judgments that are made at a series of stages. And these stages suggest that this decision is made relate in terms of the intrinsic qualities of the product how, and how it's intended to be used. But the accompanying documentation, which is shown down the side, makes it clear that, these, that labeling decisions also reflect the material and social context of food manufacture. So making a judgment between a use-by date, which could lead to unnecessary waste, or a best-before date, which could lead to unnecessary risk, requires the manufacturer to be confident not only in their knowledge of the product, but also in their control of the production environment and their access to appropriate expertise. So at question two here, a best-before label is applied to yogurt A, which is a similar product to yogurt B. And this distinction isn't made on the certainty that, in fact, yogurt B will represent a risk, but on proxies, including the manufacturer's record of hygiene and their knowledge of the behaviour of Listeria monocytogenes within the product. The manufacturer of yogurt B has, in fact, only had very occasional detection of the bacteria, but importantly has no evidence that it will not grow in the product. Consequently, yogurt produced by this, this manufacturer is deemed a potential threat regardless of its own characteristics. The choice of the label is determined by the manufacturer's past control over production and their access to appropriate forms of microbiological evidence and expertise. And so I think that the history of the, the longer history of date labeling now presented here suggests that these contemporary debates about the role of labels in food waste can be understood as a further iteration in the politics of knowing associated with the end of food. And in terms and and of representing both the consumer and the material of foods themselves. So, in conclusion, I'd to, um, so 
suggests that date labeling has evolved in the in the space that's created by the disconnection of consumption from production, particularly around the um, development of packaged and, and prepared foods. As it's developed, distinct roles have been attributed to, attributed to the consumers, to the consumer, roles that echo those in food governance in general. And these changing roles draw attention to the diversity of knowledge practices and expertises associated with food production, retail, and consumption. So in the first period here, consumers were judged to be well protected by existing law, and the emphasis on, of, of government was on the comp competitiveness of, British, of the British food industry within international markets. Date labelling was rejected on the basis that the complexity of the food supply made it infeasible. And the systems that did exist were used in-house for stock control and were coded, so they were inaccessible to the public. By the second period, pressure to open up and expand date market began to come from consumers themselves and bodies claiming to represent them. This produced a labelling system that balanced the desire to protect consumers with, from misleading retailing, but avoided load, loading the food industry with onerous reg regulation that would, um, and impractical wording. It also coincided in the late 1970s with neoliberal moves to endow the consumer with responsibilities for government. For government. As the food scare became a feature of the British food supply, however, date labels became a means of protecting the health of the public from unseen microbiological threats. The consumer became a responsibilised and cooperative member of a threatened population. The legal requirement that food be taken off sale after a certain date provided government, government and retailers with a means of managing the risks posed by listeria. And the demand that the consumer used by attempted to extend this control into the home. Labelling came to rely on a new, new nexus of microbiological expertise and endpoints of edibility defined in terms of microbiological load. Finally, in the, 19, in the late 20th and early 21st century, the dual system of date uh, best before and used by dates is considered to confuse consumers. And this situation isn't helped by the continuing use of the term sell-by in popular discourse. Politicians, industry and waste activists have all emphasised the need for better consumer understanding and the proper use, for data, proper use of date labels has become part of the exercise of environmentally conscious consumer citizenship. However, as in previous periods, the debates that arise over date labelling and waste highlight the politics of knowledge associated with representing consumer interests and food exploration. So in closing, I want to suggest that regulatory objects such as date labels increase the shelf life of social anxieties about food. They introduce a dependency to regulatory interventions that's grounded in responses to past articulations of consumer, government and industry interests and of technological change. Mandatory labels particularly coalesce and preserve the social and material relations of food and following their evolution over time provides insights into how these represent contemporaneous approaches to food governance. So every best before label, for instance, carries the legacy of consumers' organisation, consumer organisations' campaigns to, to prevent the sale of stale food to the housewife following the emergence of prepared packaged food. Equally influentially, use-by dates embody the lasting consequences of the microbiological menace of the 1980s, mediatised food scares, the introduction of chilled food, and the unpredictability of consumer behaviour. Thank you very much.